Father, we just ask now your blessing upon this time of study. Lord, as we break the bread of your word together, Lord, nourish our souls, we pray. Lord, feed us with that heavenly food that, Lord, doesn't go stale, it doesn't wear out. Lord, there's an abundance of it. Lord, as we come and sit at your table this morning, Father, I just pray that your spirit would speak to us and encourage us and edify us. Lord, equip us as we fellowship together this morning, as we study together for the work of ministry that we may, Lord, fulfill the callings that you have placed on each of our lives individually and, Lord, as a fellowship. So we just give you this time now. Speak to us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are carrying on this morning in our study of the book of Amos. And uh, just a quick reminder of where we are in terms of the chronology. So the kingdom, of course, starts with King Saul and then David follows on and then Solomon after Solomon, the kingdom divides into the northern part and the southern part. The northern part becomes known as Israel. The southern part becomes known as Judah. With the kings in the south, they are the the lineage of David. It's David and Solomon's family all the way down through that line. And that line goes all the way down to Jesus. And if you read in Matthew's Gospel in the opening chapter, you find this genealogy, the list of kings, and it takes you all the way back. So every one of these uh, is part of that line that comes down to Jesus. You can see, as I said before, the green kings are highlighted. King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. They were the good kings. Okay, By and large, they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. and They followed after David and so on, and they sought to glorify God. The other kings did not. They went after their own ideas. Uh, they got, brought the nation down. They brought the nation into idolatry and immorality and everything else. And This is why God sent prophets to warn the nation. And we'll look at some scriptures in a while. But God had said right from the time of the wandering in the wilderness that if Israel obeyed, there'd be blessing. If they disobeyed, God would remove that blessing from them and various other things would happen. And that's what we're looking at as we study through. Now, of course, we're looking... This time that Amos is speaking, it's a time in the northern kingdom, because Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom. Although he lived in the southern kingdom, uh, not far from uh, Jerusalem, he, has a, he was a prophet to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. So notice the very first one on the top left of your screen there, you can see Jeroboam I. Okay, that's when the kingdom divides. He wasn't good. He led Israel into sin and so on. Uh, set up anybody that fancied to go in the priesthood. And so a lot of the priests ended up moving down to Jerusalem. But then we have Jeroboam II sometime later. Um, he was the heir of Jehu. Now it's an interesting account. You find, again, you look in Kings and Chronicles, you find these details. King, Jeh- or King Jehu uh, is promised that because of his obedience, which was for a limited time, that God would allow his descendants to sit on the throne up until the fourth generation. Well, that's exactly what happens. Uh, We don't know how long specifically Jeroboam reigned, um, but he sits on the throne. And then just after him, the final one in that line, Zechariah, but he only stays on the throne for six months. So those four generations, Jeroboam is the third of those four uh, generations that follow after Jehu. As God had promised, he was faithful. He kept his word to Jehu. Four generations of his sons or grandsons, great-grandsons and so on, uh, end up sitting on the throne. But Jeroboam was a wicked king. Uh, Again, led Israel into idolatry and immorality. And Hosea, we've studied recently, speaks right into the situation, and Amos also. Now, we've said about Amos, he's interesting because he's told to go to Bethel. 
Okay, that was the religious center of the north. Once it had been a place that had been associated with the worship of Jehovah, with Yahweh, with God of Israel. But now they'd moved away. Of course, it was the place that Jacob had had that dream, that vision as he was leaving the land to go to Uncle Laban. And he lays down one night, has a dream, and sees this ladder with angels ascending and descending and so on. So it becomes a special place because of that. But it's also the place that Jeroboam I had put one of two golden calves, golden cows that they made. And they kind of basically said, well, this, this can be your God. No need to go down to Jerusalem. You can stay here and worship. So it becomes one of the centers of national idolatry. And Amos is told, just as this shepherd effectively, to go to this religious center of idolatry and proclaim that God is coming to bring judgment and there's nothing you can do to avert it. The line has been crossed and God is now going to come and bring that judgment. And we said already that most of Amos's predictions came true within 30 years of him saying these things. Bethel, we mentioned, was about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Those in the northern kingdom was very close to the border. Uh, and it was uh, a chief national religious shrine, as we said a moment ago, where one of these golden calves was. And we mentioned about the um, place where Jacob had slept. Now, just again, I want to read this. These are uh, one commentator's reasons for writing. I just think it's quite interesting. One of them is to announce coming judgment upon Israel because of their idolatry and sin. That's very clear. Secondly, that was to make plain to the people of Israel what the demands of God's service truly are. You see, before God brings judgment, he makes it very clear what his standard is. So people are aware that that line has been crossed. Thirdly, to remind Israel that God cares for all nations. And we've seen already that Amos has prophesied to six surrounding nations. And God exercises sovereignty over them. Fourthly, to show that all nations are expected to respect such basic rules of human conduct and integrity, honesty, purity, and fairness. And this has led a lot of commentators to look at Amos as being kind of a social justice kind of prophet. I mean, very, very topical today, of course, because everybody's kind of caught up in the whole social justice thing. That's not wrong. It's not wrong that we should expect and, and demand social justice, that we should show respect to our fellow human beings. But of course, it has to be in that context of God first, because otherwise, anything built upon man will always crumble. But nevertheless, um, Amos makes it clear that God does expect those things, and he will bring judgment if we cross those lines. And it was to show that cruel, inhumane treatment of one's neighbor will negate all worship. You see, they were still worshiping. They were still calling their idols God. But God says, no, no, worship has to be the way that God has prescribed. We don't get to go to God how we choose. We have to come to God how he chooses. A great example back in Leviticus with the sons of Aaron, and Nadab and Abihu. They choose to come to God and try and bring fire that they kindled themselves. And God has said, no, the fire that is to be used for your offerings has to come from the one that God had kindled from the altar. Well, they choose to ignore that and they decide to bring their worship their incense and so on, from their own fire. It's a great little lesson. It's the Holy Spirit that kindles that fire in our hearts of worship to the Lord. It doesn't just come from our desire to, to do something good. It has to come from the fire the Holy Spirit kindles. And there's a great lesson because in um, Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu are killed because they reject God's rules and laws regarding worship. And this is just, again, partly what Amos will uh, bring to these people. And then the last one here is to remind Israel of Jehovah's faithfulness to his covenant. 
And we see that through every single one of these prophets that come to the nation, uh, the northern and the southern kingdoms, that they just kept reiterating that God was faithful. The promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would never be pushed aside. God is faithful, and yet they were accountable uh, to obey God accordingly. So the first two chapters, we've seen judgment of eight nations. There's still already six of those where they're surrounding neighbors. Uh, and then we have Israel and Judah. And you can imagine as they're listening to Amos rattle off these judgments on Moab and Ammon and Damascus and so on and Gaza, uh, where the Philistines had been. You know, they, they were all thinking, oh, this is good. God's judging our enemies. And then suddenly Amos says, yeah, and you're in trouble too. Because you also have disobeyed and you've walked away from God. And you are just as deserving of God's wrath as they were. So that's what we see in the first two chapters, and we're now partway through the the next block, as it were, uh, where God is just underlining the guilt and the punishment of the nation of Israel. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 5, but I just want to give you the end of chapter 4 where we left last time, because it's really quite a scary statement in verse 12. It says, Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. I mean, God is basically saying to the nation, stand up, square up. We're going to head to head now. I, I want to speak directly to you, and you've got to give account. That's a scary place to be. You know, fortunately for us, we will never be in a position where we have to give account to God for our sin, for what we've done wrong, because we have an advocate with the Father. We have Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ stands before the Father for us and says, washed in the blood, cleansed. Every time Satan brings an accusation against a believer, Jesus steps in and says, washed in the blood, cleansed. That's the privilege we have as believers. And it is breathtaking. We don't fully appreciate or understand it. When we get to heaven and things become clear, we will be just overwhelmed. And this is partly why I think, you know, when you see the likes of John in Revelation and Ezekiel and others before the throne, they always fall down. Just overwhelming. We sing that song, I can only imagine, you know, will I stand in your presence or at your feet will I fall? You know, and what will it be like when we're there before God? And it all suddenly becomes clear and we realize just how incredible a gift salvation really is. But God says to Israel here, okay, get ready. I want you to give account. You know, you know know what it's like, you know, with, with children. You call them in and you say, right, what have you done? And there's that look. We, we see it with Sharia. She's very sweet at the moment. Sharia, have you done something naughty? She goes, no. And she just has this little sweet little face. And then she does that kind of little look around as if, like, if I look somewhere else, maybe, you know, everyone thing will be forgotten. But children are like that. Well, this is one of those moments God is saying to Israel, okay, I want you to tell me what you've done. And there's no squirming out of it for them. Okay, so let's jump into chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 is interesting as we go into it because... In the midst of God speaking through Amos about the judgment he's going to bring, five times now, God in this chapter is going to offer them a way out. I think this is interesting because God never tempts us beyond that which we are able, and God will always make a way out, is what Paul tells us in Corinthians. And here, in the midst of all that's gone on, everything that's happened to this point, five times God says, seek me. Turn to me and I'll forgive you. Even with all that's happened, 
And it's really quite incredible. And I find it interesting as well because the more you study scripture, the more you become aware that every detail, every letter, every number, every place name is there by deliberate supernatural design. And numbers are significant in the Bible. And five always seems to point to grace. There's a number of examples we can give of that. This is one of them. That in this chapter, the, the, the chapter is, yes, it happens to be chapter 5, but that's the side because obviously the chapter breaks are given by man. But five times specifically God calls them in this chapter to seek him. Benjamin's portion when Joseph meets the brothers again was five times greater. There's five porches in um, the sheep pool in uh, John uh, when the man that can't get into the water is there. There's fives all the way through, always associated with grace. There's a number of these. And again, God may relent concerning the judgment if they would just turn to him. Of course, Peter tells us God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But, as we're told in Hebrews, if we forsake God, there's nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment. And it's even worse for those that have heard, that have known about God, but choose to turn away. And Israel are right in that place at this time. I want to read to you, before we go into the text in the King James, I want to read to you this chapter um, through the, the Living Bible translation, um, partly because it just tells, the Living Bible is a paraphrase. Um, of course, there's lots of different um, versions, translations, and so on, and you need to be extremely careful, uh, because some translations these days uh, are, well, they're nothing more than commentaries, and some of them are poor commentaries at that. I do respect um, uh, Kenneth Taylor, who was the individual that translated the Living Bible. It's a paraphrase. It's a commentary. Treat it as a commentary. That's what it is. But it's helpful. Um, so I'm just going to read it to you because it just gives you kind of a feel for it, puts it into slightly uh, easy, easier, to, easier to understand thoughts. And then we'll go through the text itself. So Amos chapter 5 says this. Sadly, I sing this song of grief for you, Israel. Beautiful Israel lies broken and crushed upon the ground and cannot rise. No one will help her. She is left alone to die. For the Lord God says, the city that sends a thousand men to battle, a hundred will return. The city that sends a hundred, only ten will come back alive. The Lord says to the people of Israel, seek me and live. Don't seek the idols of Bethel, Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be carried off to exile. And those of Bethel, Bethel shall surely come to grief. Seek the Lord and live or else he will sweep like fire through Israel and consume her, and none of the idols in Bethel can put it out. O evil men, you make justice a bitter pill for the poor and oppressed. Righteousness and fair play are meaningless fictions to you. Seek him who created the seven stars and the constellation Orion, who turns darkness into morning and day into night, who calls forth the water from the ocean and pours it out as rain upon the land. The Lord Jehovah is his name. With blinding speed and violence, he brings destruction on the strong, breaking all defenses. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor and steal their smallest crumb by all your taxes, fines and usury. Therefore, you will never live in the beautiful stone houses you are building, nor drink the wine from the lush vineyards you are planting. For many and great are your sins. I know them all so well. You are the enemies of everything good, and you take bribes. You refuse justice to the poor. Therefore, those who are wise will not try to interfere with the Lord in the dread day of your punishment. Be good, flee evil, and live. Then the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will truly be your helper. 
as you have claimed he is. Hate evil and love the good. Remodel your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord of hosts will have mercy on his people who remain. Therefore the Lord God says this. There will be crying in the streets and every road called for the farmers to weep with you. I weep with you too. Call for professional mourners, mourners to wail and lament. There will be sorrow and crying in every vineyard. For I will pass through and destroy. You say, if only the day of the Lord were here, for then God would deliver us from all our foes. But you have no idea what you ask. For that day will not be light and prosperity, but darkness and doom. How terrible the darkness will be for you. Not a ray of joy or hope will shine. In that day you will be as a man who is chased by a lion and met by a bear, or a man in a dark room who leans against a wall and puts his hand on a snake. Yes, that will be a dark and hopeless day for you. I hate your show of pretense, your hypocrisy of honouring me with your religious feasts and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and thank offerings. I will look at your offerings of peace. Oh, sorry, I will not look at your offerings of peace. Away with your hymns of praise. They are mere noise to my ears. I will not listen to your music, no matter how lovely it is. I want to see a mighty flood of justice and a torrent of doing good. You sacrificed to me for 40 years while you were in the desert, Israel. Uh, Israel but always uh, your real interest has been in your heathen gods. In Succoth, your king, and in Cawain, your god of the stars, and in all the images of them you made. So I will send them into captivity with you far to the east of Damascus, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Okay. All right, so let's go through the text. You get kind of the feel of that from from that uh, uh, paraphrase. So, hear you this word which I've taken up against you. A lamentation, O house of Israel. Now this is interesting because Jeremiah, of course, gives us a lamentation. We have the book of Lamentations. It's Jeremiah weeping over the state of Jerusalem and the judgment that's impending. God here gives us his lamentation. You see, God does not want to bring judgment God would much rather bring mercy. But because God is good, God has to bring judgment when people do not repent. Hear you this word which I take up against you, even the lamentation of house of Israel, the virgin of Israel is fallen. And and maybe we don't get quite the expression in, in English, but there's a tenderness here on God's part. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She's no, she shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. This is the land that God had given to them. And it's a real tragedy that they're in this predicament. There is none to raise her up. I mean, all her idols and all, her, all the nations round about to whom she'd gone for support at various times, they can't help her in this situation. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. I mean, Israel was once this incredible military might under David. And the nations around them feared, so much so that when Solomon gets to the throne, the Queen of Sheba comes to check it all out because he's heard the stories and he's overwhelmed. But now, look at the state of the nation. And that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. Again, you see the heart of God coming through. Ezekiel 18.23, God says this, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and that he should return from his ways and live? You know, 
critics of the Bible, those who disdain Christianity, will often talk about the way that God seems tyrannical and God just brings judgment and wrath and so on. And why would God do... God makes it really clear God does not want to bring that wrath and that judgment. He says here, and not that he should return from his ways and live. That's what God would prefer. In Isaiah 45, 18, he says, For thus says the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He's established it, he created it, not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. This verse is saying that God created it all for mankind. God doesn't want to condemn man. Years ago, I remember one January, and I typically start just reading through the Bible in January, read through in the year, and I encourage you to do that, get through the Bible every year. And I remember just reading that opening line on the 1st of January, in the beginning, God. And I just paused, and I thought, wow. The whole lot was so that God could bring about this earth and then create man so that we could have a relationship with God. The heavens, the stars, we'll talk about some of those things in a moment. Just as impressive and as incredible as they all are, the purpose of it all was that God could have a people who would be his people and he would be their God. It's staggering the more you think about that, that everything exists for you and I, for the human race. God created it that it would be inhabited. God wants this relationship with his creation. God doesn't want to destroy. Notice again, Verse 3 here, for thus says the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. This is really picking up an idea that comes back from, uh, or is taken from Leviticus. I just want to read to you from Leviticus 26. Notice first of all it says, if ye. Now, there are a number of unconditional covenants in the Bible. Okay, they're covenants that God makes the irrespective of what the people do, God will keep. Okay, The covenant that God made with Abraham is one of those covenants. God promised Israel the land, irrespective of how they behaved. But when we get to the time of Moses and the law being given, there are a number of conditional covenants that God makes with them that depend upon their obedience. And this is one of them. Notice this, if you will walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. That's the if, then. All right, so what we're going to read now is all dependent upon them walking in his statutes. I love that word. As you know, I've been going through a study uh, in Psalm 119, and we have a number of different terms, there's seven actually, that are used uh, for the word of God. Statutes is one of those. Statutes speaks of things that are engraved. And that's, that's really the idea, something that's engraved upon your heart. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then... Notice what it says. I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Sounds great, doesn't it? And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage. You know, you're going to be keep, you know, chopping down until it's time to bring all the, the vintage in, and the vintage shall reach unto the time of sowing. You know, there's this kind of constant abundance of fruit. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And then this is the bit here. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. 
again, God is speaking of walking with him, walking in the way, to use that expression from Psalm 119, and in doing so there will be blessings. Psalm 119 starts with a double blessing. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with a whole heart. It's an interesting study to actually go through Psalms. And there's a number of occasions where you'll find blessed is the man that, and he gives you a condition. It's a great way to, to become beneficiaries of those blessings. Because God says, you can be blessed if you do this. Go check them out. Go through Psalms. So look, there's a number of occasions that you'll find it. God says, there are blessings to be had, but it's about obedience. Walk with me. Follow me. Trust me. Verse 9 of Leviticus 26 goes on and says, For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. And you shall eat uh, old store and bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And this is the, the, the wonderful bit. And I will walk, with, uh, walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. You know, that's what God wanted right from the start, right from Eden. That God would walk with man. That in the beginning, Adam and Eve had that privilege of walking with God. And of course, sin broke that fellowship. And ever since, God has been working to restore that relationship. And finally, we get to the end of Revelation, and that's exactly what we read. Finally, we get there, and the walk with God will be resumed. That which began in Eden, was interrupted because of sin, will be restored. And for eternity, we will be God's people and he will be our God. And this is what he was looking for with Israel. They were called to be separate from the nations of the world. God wanted to do something so wonderful and special with them. And unfortunately, they did not become that light to the world that they were called to be. They were a vine that should have brought blessing and fruit. They failed in doing that. There's another vine in Revelation 16, the vine of the earth. That promises a root to God, but it leads you the wrong way. Finally, Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine and brings us to God. But notice again in Leviticus here, all the, after all those promises, we read, but if you will not hearken unto me and not do all these commandments, and if you should despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will do this unto you. And then the list goes on and you can read it in Leviticus, you can read it elsewhere. And this is what Amos is speaking about. You know, there's a spiritual law here. And that is simply the law of sowing and reaping. You know, we're familiar with laws in nature. The law of gravity, for example. Every time it works. You know, there's never an occasion that the law of gravity doesn't work. And this law also applies every single time. And Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. He says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's easy to look at this and you think of it in terms of the world and the people that are ungodly and think of you know, those that do bad things, well, bad things are going to happen. It's, you know, but this is far more applicable to those that know God. You know, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. What do you spend your time doing? What are your hobbies? What are your interests? What are your pastimes? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, if you've got phones and computers and things, some of you will all no doubt have, you know, you you get an email or an update of how much time you spent on your device this week. 
And it always makes me think when I, when I get those little reminders on the phone that come through, this week you spent, you know, 20% more or less time or whatever on your phone than you did last week. And you, this, you think, yeah, okay, how much time have I spent on the things of God? How much of my time is given over to godly pursuits? Because this is really clearly saying that, you know, what you sow to is what you're going to reap. If we're sowing to the things of the world, are we surprised that we then reap the things of the world? But if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap spiritual things. Okay, now we start to go into this amazing grace that God shows in the midst of Amos's message of judgment. For thus says the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and you shall live. It's incredible with all that's been said, with all the iniquity so far. God is saying, but seek me and you shall live. This is the first of our five. We'll go through them. He said, but seek not Bethel, its place of idolatry and, and false worship, nor enter into Gilgal, nor pass to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, here's the second one, and you shall live. God reiterates the same thing. Seek God. That's what we're called to do. Jesus said the same thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, my paraphrase of that is, seek first the kingdom of God, then everything else will sort itself out. All these things shall be added unto you. Everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the first thing we should be doing. It's a great thing at the start of the day to put your head in God's word. And just allow that to start to get your brain going. You know, you, you eat breakfast to get your body going. Well, you need to be reading God's word to get your spirit going in the morning. Seek the Lord, is what God says. And again, notice, lest, and this is to Israel, of course, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. The, the term Joseph there is used. Of course, Joseph, the tribe becomes split because of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, which Jacob adopts as his own. And so because Levi are not given a portion in the land, because they're a priestly tribe and they are spread out throughout the land, so Ephraim becomes this um, idiom of the northern kingdom. So in this context, Joseph is simply representing the northern kingdom. So let's fire break out in the northern kingdom of Israel, in the house of Joseph, and devour it, and there'll be none to quench it in Bethel. In other words, your gods won't be able to help you. Verse 7, ye who turn judgment to wormwood, wormwood being a root is bitter, and leave off righteousness in the earth. Yet there's a turning away from the things that were right and were true. And here we go again, this is our third one. Seek him that makes the seven stars and Orion and turns the shadow of death into the morning and makes the day dark with night that calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. The strengtheneth the spoil against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. What does all that mean? Well, God is trying to get across to them why they should seek him. Why should they turn to him? Because he is the God who created everything. Do you know, when I was much, much younger, I remember thinking to myself, is there really a God? And I already had learned enough to realize that evolution is stupid. It's nonsense. There's no scientific proof for evolution whatsoever. And I, some of you are aware I got into a debate with Michael Gove when he was education secretary when they announced they were going to start teaching evolution to primary school children. I asked them, okay, can you give me one fact that's substantiated by science that warrants teaching it as part of a science curriculum? 
And he came back, he said, oh, he said, we, we've got experts, and we've got lots of you know, information and things. I said, okay, just give me one fact. They couldn't. They didn't give me one fact that warrants teaching evolution to primary school children. There isn't. There is nothing that science, true science, shows that will support evolution theory. I mean, evolution says things become something other than themselves. It's unscientific. Never been demonstrated, never been seen, can't be demonstrated, can't be seen. The Bible says everything reproduces after its kind. What do we see? Exactly that. You've got Darwin's book, God's book. I know which one I choose. No question. God says to them here, I'm God. I created everything. And I remember having this, this thought in my head, you know, look, you know, regardless of what I think about life, where do we come from? We had to have had a beginning. Nothing couldn't have become everything. There has to be a creator. It has to be God. And it was really as simple as that. I thought, you know, there is a God. God is who he says he is. He is the creator. And this is what he's saying to them. Seek me. You know, I am God. I created everything. And it's interesting the, the, the things he says here. Made the seven stars. That's speaking of the constellation of Pleiades. And then he mentions and Orion. And turns the shadow of death and goes on. We'll come to the bits. But the seven stars... Uh, as I say, is part of this constellation, Pleiades. Um, they're both mentioned with Orion as well in Job 38, verse 31. And there the Lord says, asking Job some questions, can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Now, what's interesting in this is that of all the constellations you look at and you see, most of them, they are, they're stars, but they are so far apart. Although when we look at the heavens, we look at them, we see them in the same groupings. Some of them are so distant that they're not even close to each other. But these ones are. They have a gravitational impact on each other. They're the two that somehow Job manages to record as saying that these are grouped together. Is it the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? It implies a connection, and we know now know that there is a connection between these. But Orion, again, is interesting. I'm not going too far off track. Uh, it's pictured as this kind of hunter, uh, and there's all sorts of links that go all the way back to Nimrod, uh, who himself was a hunter, and this is where the Maseroth, that the Hebrews knew, the, which told the plan of God in the stars. That's where it got corrupted and becomes the Zodiac, which is the same in all cultures around the world. I, I just thought it was interesting. Let me just show you this. Uh, that's the earth, you just see there, in comparison to the sun. All right. Um, that's, again, just to, to give you some scale. So you just about see that little dot there with Earth. Again, in comparison with the sun, we are pretty small compared to the sun. All right. Look how big the sun is. Massive, huge, isn't it? Well, not when you compare it to Betelgeuse. This is one of the stars that are in the constellation of Orion. And Regal is another one of those stars. Look at our sun. Our sun, how massive and huge it is compared to this other Huge star. And this is what God is saying to them. You know, ancient cultures probably had a better understanding of those things in the heavens than maybe even we do today. Yes, we've got great technology and telescopes and we can see all sorts of things. But we've also got internet and we've got TV and we've got YouTube and we've got mobile phones. And there's so many things that take our time up. Whereas people like David would sit and look at the heavens and think about God. And God just simply says to them, just think about these things. I'm the God that created all this. That's why you should seek me and live. Verse 10 goes on. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him 
that speaks uprightly. This is how Israel had, had degenerated to the point that people that said the good things, they didn't like it. Made them uncomfortable. They didn't want to hear it. And the idea again, him that rebuketh in the gate is somebody that comes to the gates. The gates in, in Israel and those cultures were the town council. Okay, it's where people debated and talked. It's where decisions were made. That's why when Jesus speaks about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, I mean, not talking about iron gates coming and attacking. That's, you know, the gates of hell is the councils of hell. Anything of the schemes of Satan will not prevail against the church. Okay, that's the idea of the gates. You see it in the book of Ruth, of course, where Boaz goes to the gate of the city and meets his uh, near kinsmen and so on. So the gates just speak about the councils. And somebody that comes to rebuke in the gate to say, look, you're doing something's wrong. Well, they don't like that. They abhor him that speaks up properly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor. And this is what they were doing. They were showing no respect or compassion to the poor. And you take from him burdens of wheat. The idea that the, the poor people were carrying on their shoulders their burdens. They, they managed to gather, gather their food from the field. And they go and just take it off of their shoulders. They take these hard-earned, hard-worked-for food parcels away from them. And you've built houses of hewn stone. And this is what God says to them, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. It reminds me of a little bit of the New Testament. Of course, Jesus speaks of the man who goes and builds bigger barns. You know, thinking, well, look how wealthy I am. You know, I have to build bigger barns to put everything in. And Jesus says, you fool. This night your life will be required of you. And he's saying the same to Israel here. You know, we tend to think everything is going to carry on as it has been, that tomorrow is going to be the same as today. We don't expect change. In fact, change in our world is quite strange. And even COVID has really rocked the world, hasn't it? Something that nobody had anticipated or expected or whatever. No, we expect everything to be the same as it's always been. But it's not going to be. And there's, there's going to come a day when everything is dramatically going to change on this earth. With the day when the Lord calls his people home. First Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks of that day. Verse 12, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, they afflict the just, they take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their rights. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. In other words, as we saw, the paraphrase in the Bible implied that, you know, those that are wise are going to keep quiet when God brings his judgment because they will know that it's deserved, that God is right in doing it. Verse 14, seek good. Okay, so here we go again. It's our fourth one now. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil and love good. This is the last Admonition, request, plea on God's heart. Turn away from that which is evil. Love the things that are good and establish judgment in the gates. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. You see, even now, God is still reaching out, asking them to turn from their iniquity. But this is so sad as you go through the tail end of this chapter now because it says, therefore... It's, God is outside of time. He knows the end of the beginning. He knows that their hearts are already hardened. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, wailing shall be in all the streets. And they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing. Oh, they have professional mourners. You may have heard this before. People that you could hire 
it's very bizarre to us. But he's saying, go and call the professional mourners in. This is a time to really show sorrow. And in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, says the Lord. What a contrast to God that said that they would have an abundance of fruit all year round if they walk with him. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, just get the context of this. Because even at this stage, there was enough prophecy that had been given. And bear in mind, Joel, as we started, was already uh, circulating. Those that had uh, heard the message that Joel had brought was about the day of the Lord coming. But you see, God had spoken about delivering Israel. The day of the Lord, in many respects, is about delivering the nation. That the Lord will redeem his people. That the Lord will then establish his throne and rule and reign. David had said, sorry, the Lord had said to David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would establish his throne, that one of his descendants would sit on a throne forever. And so the idea is, oh, wouldn't it be great if we got to the day of the Lord because then all our enemies are going to be judged. Same idea that we see in the first chapter. And God says it's not something you want to be looking forward to because it's not just going to be a day of judgment upon your enemies. It's going to be a day of judgment upon you. And in the book of Jeremiah, we're told that it's the day of Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. The day of the Lord is a time when God will bring the, his wrath and justice and judgment on this unbelieving and Christ-rejecting world. But it's also a time that God will complete that judgment on Israel. And they will, in the midst of it all, turn to him, finally. But here, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man, this is a great expression here, as if a man did flee from a lion. You just got away, a lion was chasing you, and then you run into a bear. Not good. Or went into a house and leaned his hand upon a wall and a serpent bit him. I mean, now whether this is in the, the Living Bible paraphrase, it kind of disconnects these two, but uh, some of the commentaries just lump all this together, that you're fleeing from a lion, you get away from the lion, and then get a bear. So you, you find a house, you run into the house, you, what a relief. You put your hand on the wall and a snake bites you. It's like a bad day. Verse 20, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? God is saying, don't look forward to that. That's not something you want to be waiting for. Because for those who are not walking with the Lord, it will not be a good time. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. The idea is that the the offerings that were offered up, the incense, uh, or even the roasting lamb, will be a sweet smell. I mean, some of you may have occasionally visited a kebab shop, I'm just saying. And the smell's great. You know, it may not be that good for you. Well, the lamb's good for you. If you go shish, shish kebab and you've got the, uh, the lamb, it smells fantastic. But this was the idea. The God said it was a pleasant smell. But God says, I'm not interested. I despise your feast days. Though they were carrying on with their religious ceremonies and services and so on. And they were still offering sacrifices. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. You see, it's not about going through the ritual, the motions. It's about the heart. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take that away from me, the noise of thy songs. For I will not hear the melody of, the, of thy vials, of the, their musical instruments. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. That's what God's saying I want. I'm not looking for you to carry on offering sacrifices. That won't do anything. I want sincerity. I want judgment and righteousness. 
or an intolerance. That's how it should be. There's going to be a torrent of water in the new Jerusalem. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You know, just reminding you, did you remember what you did in the wilderness for 40 years? But you have borne the tabernacle of your Molech and Chian, your images. So these gods that the pagan nations around them had got involved in worshipping, they got caught up in it. Now, once again, it's easy for us to look at this and you think, well, we'd never make that mistake. Really? How many of the, the gods of this world do we find ourselves worshipping inadvertently? You know, we live in a world that's given over to materialism or how easy it is to get caught up in those things. You know, we have an advertising machine that tries to sell you what you don't need and tells you how important it is that your life will be blessed so much if you have this particular thing. And we all fall prey to those things. I love the the old Quaker saying, friend, tell me what you need and I'll tell you how to live without it. I love that. It's just, you know, we, we get so caught up in what we think we need. But, you know, they were given over to the worship of their gods. But, you know, for a lot of these people, they were caught up in the, the groundswell of what was going on. Others were doing it, and they were worshipping, and they were saying, oh, it's okay, you know, we still call it God. Oh, okay, so it must be all right then. You know, come to our church type thing. We need to be so careful, so discerning, and we can so easily be deceived in these things. The star of your God, which you made to yourselves. And this is, of course, the issue, that they've made a God to suit themselves. It's the breaking of the second commandment. You don't make a a God to suit yourself in your own image. Therefore, will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus? And, of course, that's exactly what happened, because they went to Babylon. Sorry, the northern kingdom went to Assyria, and later the southern kingdom would go to Babylon. They went beyond Damascus. They were taken out past Damascus to Assyria. Thus says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You see, God appeals to them to turn to him five times, as we've seen. God reminds them that he is deserving of their their praise and their adoration, of their love and their respect, because he is the creator God. He's the God that made them. He's a merciful God. He's the God that gave them the land, led them for 40 years. I mean, there's enough reasons in this chapter alone for the nation to go, yeah, okay, we'll turn back to God. Well, what about us this morning? Is there enough here to stir your heart to say, you know what, there's things in my life I'm just going to get rid of. I don't need them. Remember what Paul said in Corinthians, that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. I'll not be brought under the power of any of those things. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we pray that you impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, we want to walk with you. Father, we recognize how easy it is to get caught up in the things of this world without even realizing we're doing it. And just like many in Israel... Lord, they were sincere people. They were worshipping in sincerity, but Lord, they were not worshipping in truth. Father, help us to re-examine our lives. Lord, to allow your Holy Spirit to shine his spotlight into our hearts. And Lord, as we read, Lord, in your word, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Oh, lead me in the way of everlasting. 
But Lord, we ask these things this morning for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.